it's 6 p.m. and you're tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, June 7th, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Julia Jem. Kelly Reese returns Friday. The California Report covers the effects of a Central Valley Lake's return due to flooding. Then, after a look at regional news and weather, KVMR's Al Stoller speaks with the leading hurricane forecaster about what may be in store for this summer's Atlantic hurricane season. That's all before KVMR Youth News Corps reporter Orion Ray Scott explores the complex concept of the critical race theory, as well as its impacts on students K-12 across the state. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. There were over 100 hate and anti-government groups active in California in 2022. That's according to a new report from the Southern Poverty Law Center. KQED's Alex Hall has more. Researchers found 46 hate groups in California last year, slightly less than the previous year, and 57 anti-government extremist groups. The Southern Poverty Law Center says the groups it tracks are focusing more on organizing at the local level. Margaret Huang is the group's president and CEO. We are seeing it in our school board discussions. We are seeing it in our city council debates. And what we're seeing is an increasing effort to tie policy and political positions to far-right ideology. Activity by militia groups also decreased, in part, researchers believe, because of a crackdown on leaders and members of groups involved in January 6th. For The California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Oakland. In Los Angeles County, at least three people were arrested yesterday as protests broke out outside the Glendale Unified School Board headquarters over how schools teach gender and sexuality. The public comment portion of yesterday's board meeting was actually cut short after law enforcement ordered people inside to shelter in place. Here's Glendale Unified Superintendent Vivian Exian speaking to KTLA News. Our primary focus in our school district is to be inclusive. Every student matters, every family member matters. We do follow in a public system state laws and um, California Department of Education guidelines. The board wasn't even considering the curriculum yesterday. They were just voting to recognize June as Pride Month, which board members approved unanimously. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care, now with more than 850 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. The return of a vast lake in California's Central Valley because of flooding has caused millions of dollars in agricultural damage. But the new lake is also giving members of a Native American tribe a rare chance to get back in touch with their roots and sacred traditions. From the Central Valley, KVPR Sarith Hawk reports. A prayer opens a ceremony to honor the return of the long-lost Tulare Lake. Members of the Tachiyoka tribe gathered at the shore late one recent afternoon. The sun is still hot. It's windy. 
water stretches as far as the eye can see. And what you see behind us now is Fa'ashi has reawakened. That's Robert Jeff, the, the tribe's vice chairman. Pa'ashi means big water, the Tachiyokut name for the lake. Itachi is one of about 50 tribes that once built their lives around the water before it was diverted to make way for farming in the early 1900s. Now that this year's heavy rains and record snowpack have brought the lake back, for the tribe, it's a celebration. They believe the spirits of their ancestors have come back to the lake. They're flying around out there. They're flying over it. They're flying through it. They're coming back to it. Kenny Barrios is the tribe's cultural liaison. He wrote a new song for the occasion. That song said, we need our water. Thank you for bringing our water back. Tribe members give offerings to the water. Some scatter seeds of native river sage. Diamond Garcia wades in knee-deep to plant tule. The reeds used to grow abundantly here and gave Tulare Lake its name. And hopefully they grow like we want. <laughs> Growing up in the tribe, Daniel Ramos says he always heard stories about the lake. Our medicine man always talked talk about it all the time. That would come back one day. The belief was that when the lake came back, it could help cleanse the land. Ramos's nine-year-old son, Hunter, plays clapstick. It's a traditional Native American instrument made out of wood. He says the ceremony makes him proud. It feels good to be from the, the Yokut tribe. It feels good to be Native. At the bottom of the lake are farmers' sunken livelihoods. This swath of the San Joaquin Valley has seen nearly $300 million in damages to crops and dairies. The lake water is contaminated with decades of waste from farms. Pearl Hutchins belongs to another band of yokut and came to the ceremony. She says she feels bad for the farmers and other people who've had to move. That was their home, and now they don't have a home. So I feel sorry for a lot of people that can't live where they would live before. Since the Tachiyokut lost their home along the lake to make way for these farmers in the early 1900s, they moved to a reservation about five miles away. These days, the tribe has about 1,200 members. A resort and casino is their main source of revenue. But the source of the tribe's cultural riches is the lake, and many tribe members hope it will stay. Ramos says that's up to the water, up to Pa'ashi. You know, if it wants to be here or, you know, it's up to the lake to see how long it wants to be here for the people. Forecasters expect the lake will remain for at least another year. While it's around, tribe leaders plan to hold ceremonies regularly. For the California Report, I'm Sarith Hawk in Kings County. And we leave you with this. The U.S. Forest Service says it can confirm sightings of wolverines in the Inyo National Forest and Yosemite National Park. Now that's special because California's own population of wolverines vanished in the 1920s because of hunting and human encroachment on their habitats. And entire decades have passed between sightings of the animal. The wolverines that have been spotted are believed to have wandered into California from adjacent states. Wolverines resemble small bears, but they're actually 
including members of the weasel and badger family. And with that knowledge bomb, that's the California Report for Wednesday, June 7th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In regional news, in a news release today, the Bureau of Land Management announced that it plans to conduct prescribed fire operations in the Inium Forest, which consists of nearly 2,000 acres on the San Juan Ridge in Nevada County. It'll be considered an understory burn, which is a prescribed burn that occurs under a forest canopy. Understory burn operations are scheduled to start on Wednesday, June 7th, and may continue through June 16th. The exact timing of the burn operations will largely depend on weather conditions, air quality, resource availability, and on-site observations. Burning will consist of approximately 150 acres in the area of Jackass Flats Road and McNabb Cypress Road in the Inium Forest. The prescribed fire has been prepared for understory burning through close coordination with the Yuba Watershed Institute, which performs mechanical treatments with crews and machinery to carefully thin dense hazardous tree covers and underlying brush to improve forest health. You can observe updates on this burn using the RxBurn hashtag by the BLM through its social media accounts on both Facebook and Twitter. Turning now to a look at the regional weather forecast from the National Weather Service. In Grass Valley and Nevada City, Tonight, mostly cloudy with a low around 52. Thursday, mostly sunny with a high near 73. And Thursday night, partly cloudy with a low around 52. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m., then a slight chance of showers between 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. Mostly cloudy with a low around 41. Chance of precipitation is 20%. Thursday, a 50% chance of showers and thunderstorms after 11 a.m., Some of the storms could produce heavy rain, partly sunny with a high near 65. Thursday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 39. And for Sacramento and the surrounding valley, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 57. Thursday, mostly sunny with a high near 81. And Thursday night, mostly clear with a low around 55. Currently, there are no red flag warnings or fire weather watches. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Atlantic hurricane season became the third costliest on record, mostly due to Hurricane Ian. And while it may not be possible to know exactly how this summer season will play out, forecasting clues can provide us with a solid estimate. Coming up, KVMR's Al Stoller speaks with a leading hurricane forecaster to find out more. Colorado State University recently issued its forecast for the upcoming Atlantic hurricane season. I spoke with Dr. Phil Klotzbach, director of the forecasting project. How is the Atlantic different from other ocean basins? One of the big things is that when you have El Nino events, the Atlantic Ocean typically has less activity due to changes in wind patterns. That's one of the reasons why the Atlantic's different from the Pacific. The Atlantic is also, it's kind of always on the edge. Always on the edge, meaning? Year to year, there's a lot more variability in Atlantic seasons. You can get a really big season or you can get a really quiet season. Fairly small changes can make big, big differences in the Atlantic. 
Hurricanes are very responsive to their environment. There's a lot of years where not all that much happens in the Atlantic. But then there's other years, if you force the environment in such a way that it's more conducive, you can get a big season. How important to a storm, to the strength of the storm, to the duration, how important is symmetry? If you have pretty strong winds at upper levels kind of blowing from a different direction than than at low levels, that tends to kind of tilt and disrupt the circulation. And so when you have a very strongly tilted storm, that storm tends to weaken. And that's just because when it's tilted, you're more likely to mix in dry air into the storm, which kind of chokes off the thunderstorms. And if it's really strongly tilted, you just don't get the, the winds to accelerate. If you want a strong storm, you want the storm to be, you know, pretty much symmetric. Hurricanes are self-propagating. Once they get going, they keep themselves going. If you have a hurricane over a warm ocean and you don't have much shear and there's enough moisture, it'll just keep on chugging along. But they also are very dependent on the environment. So obviously if a hurricane goes over land, it loses its energy source and it weakens usually pretty quickly. Also, too, if you know, a hurricane can be going along and intensifying just fine and then suddenly it hit basically either a pocket of dry air or a lot of shear or both. And that will cause it to weaken. So if left alone to their own devices, they will tend to kind of keep on chugging. They basically are kind of like a heat engine. The winds evaporate water off of the ocean surface. And then that basically goes into the circulation, up in the circulation, it condenses. And so basically a hurricane is kind of like an in, up and out circulation. You have winds spiraling into the storm at low levels. They go up in the thunderstorms and they spiral out at upper levels. One of the things you take into account in making your forecast of the hurricane season is the seasonal rainfall in Western Africa. How does Western Africa's seasonal rainfall affect the hurricanes that form in the Atlantic? When you have a lot of rain in West Africa, that's indicative that you basically have stronger thunderstorm complexes coming off of the West Coast of Africa. Basically, most years, the number of those coming off Africa is fairly constant, but there's some years where they're stronger. And when they're stronger, that tends to kind of load the dice that they're more likely to develop into hurricanes. If you have a bunch of really strong thunderstorm complexes coming off of Africa every few days, that tends to just basically load the dice that you're going to get um, one or more nasty hurricanes. The Atlantic, I understand, is unusually warm this year. Every year from you know February, March to September, the waters are warming. But this year, they're just warming up very quickly. Normally, when the waters are warm, that provides more fuel for the hurricanes. But also, when the waters are warm, that tends to make for also a more unstable atmosphere, which is also more conducive for the hurricanes. Kind of the big kind of push-pull on this season is we have near-record warm or record warm, depending on where you want to measure it, in water temperatures in the Atlantic, but also the potential for quite a robust El Nino event in the Pacific. And so... It's kind of a question as to how those two things are going to push-pull against each other to um, determine you know, how busy the overall season is. The air pressure over the Caribbean is important to your forecast. When you have low pressures in the Caribbean, that means you have a more unstable atmosphere there, which generally is more conducive for storms. Could you give me a summary of, of your forecast? Right now, we're forecasting a near-average hurricane season with a total of 15 named storms. Of those 15 storms, seven becoming hurricanes, and of those seven, three becoming major category three, four, or five hurricanes, that compares with the long-term average of about 14 storms, seven hurricanes, and three major hurricanes. So basically a dead-on average hurricane season this year. I've been speaking with Dr. Phil Klotzbach of Colorado State University. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. 
Critical race theory is a hot and complicated topic. It's the cross-disciplinary examination of how laws, social and political movements, and media shape and are shaped by social conceptions of race. Up next, KVMAR Youth News Corps reporter Orion Rayshkot takes a deep dive into how critical race theory works, how it's being taught in schools, if at all, and the ideas that it promotes. Critical race theory and its effects on our students has become a heated topic in our county. What is the definition of critical race theory? What are the effects on our students? Is it even being taught in a school district? These are questions many people, like myself, had after the disarray and fallout of the October school board meeting. I interviewed Judy Wood, the founder of the Grass Valley-based group Protecting American Ideals. She says that Protecting American Ideals is a group dedicated to creating and keeping the American people's freedom. She has come to many Nevada Joint Union High School District's events and board meetings and has advocated for her program. I also interviewed Dr. David Childs, a professor of history and African-American studies at Northern Kentucky University. He has two doctorates, two masters, and a bachelor's degree, most surrounding African-American studies and theology. They have some disagreement on what critical race theory actually is. Wood thinks it's a weapon, used for making America out to be a racist country. On the other hand, Dr. Child sees it more as a tool for talking about racism in our country. What is critical race theory? Let me back up a little bit and ask the question, what is critical theory? And critical theory goes all the way back to Hegel, who put forth the idea, truth comes from two clashing opposite ideas. So critical race theory is the idea that you see the world not colorblind, but rather you need to see race as the lens through which you view everything. The main idea that comes out of it is that the United States is fundamentally, institutionally, and systemically racist. What is critical race theory? Tool. It's a philosophical tool to talk about race and the impact of race in our society. Another aspect of critical race theory is they say critical race theory says we should we should use storytelling to get people to understand systemic racism in society and white supremacy. Critical race theory, one aspect of it is to tell a story so that people can have empathy and understand what I've gone through. How do you think critical race theory affects students? So it's a complex theory that normally lives in graduate schools and doctoral programs and law schools. Critical race theory is not taught in any elementary school. It's not taught in, in any middle school. And most high school teachers are not equipped to teach critical race theory to high school students. Even at the undergrad level, it's a complex theory. And critical race theory in and of itself, first of all, is just one of many theories that we talk about in education. But it has no direct bearing on what happens in the everyday schools. There's this false notion that there are these crazy liberals out there that have a conspiracy theory going into our uh, high schools, our middle schools, elementary schools, incognito, under disguise, and we're secret, secretly teaching Marxist theories and critical race theories that teach white people to hate themselves. That's a complete fab fabrication. Um, the data doesn't support it. Nobody's doing that. But on the other hand, we could use it as a tool to talk about systemic racism in our society. How do you think critical race theory affects students? 
the class called critical race theory isn't actually taught in Nevada County schools. But what's taught in our schools are the ideologies that come down through this belief system. While they agree that there's no critical race theory class being taught in K-12 through schools, they disagree if it's affecting students' learning. So I asked, what does critical race theory teach? Judy Wood replied, The main ideology is that equal outcomes replaces equal opportunity. The other thing is looking at individuals through the lens of race. There have been numerous studies done on how this affects students, and in fact, it makes people far more conscious of race, and it creates a lot more antagonism and divisiveness than looking at the world colorblind. Dr. David Childs replied, Our country is becoming more and more diverse, and the curriculum that looks at racism as a core part of our history, it just is. I mean, um, they're uncomfortable with the curriculum. It, com- it comes from the perspective of white privilege. There's this notion that if I talk about racism, I'm going to perpetuate the system. Um, racism only exists because we keep talking about it. People talk about it because it's a part of our everyday life. What drives you? Judy Wood said, I am motivated by a love of freedom. And I think we as a country have taken it for granted for so long that we don't really know where it comes from. What does the world look like when you don't have freedom? It's pretty horrendous. So what I would like Nevada County students to learn is America's foundational principles that teach us how to be free. I'm a black man, I'm a black male, and I'm relatively young. Um, Multiple times I've been pulled over by the police um, going to look at a a car. The car salesman was another African-American male. And the particular car I was looking at was located at another one of their lots. And so the lot was in the the next town over, so it was a 10 minute drive. In the time that we went from one car lot to the next, we got pulled over by the police. And the police told us, and I quote, drug dealers frequent this neighborhood. We're pulling you over because we thought you were drug dealers. And um, he he uh, directly told us that he thought we were drug dealers because of the color of our skin. I can't sit there and say, I'm going to ignore racism. I don't have that privilege. Unfortunately, and I know it makes people uncomfortable, those are uh, regular occurrences for myself, even though I'm a full professor with tenure, even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm also a pastor. I have uh, beautiful children, happily married. But off, unfortunately, when some people see me, they see a black man that's a criminal. And there's no ignoring that. This is Orion Reichcott from KVMR's Community Radio Youth News Corps. The KVMR Youth News Corps is funded by AJA Video Systems a privately owned global video technology company based in Grass Valley, California, since 1993. AJA Video Systems is deeply dedicated to the Grass Valley and Nevada City community, recognizing the need for investment in youth and education initiatives.
That's our newscast for this Wednesday, June 7th. Head over to our website, kvmr.org, or subscribe to the KVMR News Podcast to hear more. KVMR gets support from Milkman Toner Company, providing local, hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. Serving Northern California counties from San Francisco to Lake Tahoe. MilkmanCompany.com And Serenos at Main Street. Serving Italian cuisine since 1983. Open Wednesday through Sunday, 11 to 10 p.m. for lunch and dinner. Offering private dining snugs, available for customer safety and comfort. Information, serenos at MainStreet.com Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Julia Jem. Have a great night.